might have seen me scurrying around mid-service. I went out to send off the SSP team as well and give some high fives and to check out their picture. I have a rich history with CR Service Project. Uh, when I was the youth pastor at Los Altos United Methodist Church early on in my ministry, uh, I went regularly on that program. In fact, the week we went to SSP always seemed to fall on our anniversary. Our anniversary is coming up. will be 22 years in a couple of weeks here on the 29th of July. And uh, for the first, what, five of seven years we were married, um, we weren't together on our anniversary because I was working with young people on Native American reservations, thinking fondly of Camille, uh, but hammering <laughs> and painting. Uh, SSP has one of those opportunities for those uh, young people that you saw up here, those eight young people and the adults that go with them to serve, uh, to see God in their lives. And not in the way that you might expect. Sometimes Christian missionaries think, boy, I'm going to take the gospel. Boy, I'm going to take the church. I'm going to do the right thing and the great thing in the community that I'm going to serve. But in all the time that I ever worked in SSP, the times I saw God and Christ the most were at the ends of hammers and paintbrushes, in stories shared, in song and fellowship, in van rides, where it was an opportunity for them to go deeper in their story and to realize that their work had some sort of matter and meaning beyond themselves. Rarely do we see God in our lives in the expected way. We don't often get the, the burning bush or the mountaintop experience or the clouds parting and the voice from the heavens. God most often comes to our lives and stories in a way that we can invite others to come and see in ways that often shock and surprise. That's what's at the heart of our text this morning. So I want to dive into the Gospel of John with you again today. We're in John chapter 4. Uh, I listed it as 4 through 30. I'm going to sample it to give you a better sense of the story there. And it reads in this way. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. It was near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's, <clears throat> excuse me, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour or about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said, How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Oh, the woman said, Sir, give me some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming back to this well to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, what you said is true. You are right. In fact, when you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Skipping down a little bit. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Here's what you need to know about the Samaritan woman at the well. She is clever. She gets it. She's bright and articulate. She asks the right questions in the midst of theological dialogue. She is not combative. She is not defensive. She is clever, but she is also spiritually hungry. And in the case of the image of living water, spiritually thirsty. She's a social outcast. That's why she's there at noon, mind you. 
Most of the women in the village, not unlike our travels along the paseos here in this community, are done well before the eight o'clock hour so that the heat of day doesn't wear heavy on your backs. When you go out to Jacob's Well to draw the water, you do that early in the morning, and it is a time of water cooler talk, social gathering and visiting between the women who go to draw water there, but not for this one woman. She goes at noon because she's not welcome with the rest of the women during that time. She is avoiding the crowds. She's been rejected by her community, and we will find out later that it has something to do with the history and pattern of her relationships. It makes her the source of scorn, but more than that, of community rejection. How do you handle rejection? How have you handled rejection in your life? With a pattern of scorn? Are you the type that says, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? Do you handle rejection by carrying the wound of that experience forward into all that you do and you hold it up as a lens to see every other interaction? To say, I was rejected and the one thing I know is I won't be hurt like that again ever. Are you the kind of person who reframes your rejection? Are you the kind of person who internalizes it and blames oneself and says, yeah, they were right to treat me the way that they did? I probably deserved it. Are you treating rejections as a learning opportunity, a chance for growth? How do you handle rejection? Well, the woman makes her choice. It's avoidance. You rejected me. You cast me aside, so I'm not going to be around you. I am going to come to the well by myself. But here's the simple truth in Confession Church is that no one can be rejected beyond the reach of God and the work of Christ. There's no pattern of failure and rejection in your story or in mine that puts us outside of the scope of God's love and God's hope. In the story, Jesus and the woman really do fail to see eye to eye. And so for using the image of glasses, and you'll get a pair as you go today, it is true that they have different lenses on the world, but that difference does not thwart Jesus. The woman sees practical things in their interaction. She sees the difference in their relationship. Who are you, a Jew, to ask me, a Samaritan, for water? Who are you, a man, to talk to me, a woman? Jesus is reframing that sense in the same way that Paul will later. Don't you know that in God there is neither male nor female? There is not Jew or Greek. And so let's connect. Let's interact. When it comes to the topic of drawing water, She doesn't see the opportunity for him to be the water of life. Rather, she says, but where is your bucket? How can you get me water? You have nothing to offer it to me in. When Jesus says, I can give you living water, she pictures not some sort of spiritual enterprise, but something that is profane. And it pictures the the water that flows in a river or a stream that can be drawn out clean and clear and not settled like you might find in a well. All of her imagery is earthly. All of Christ's vision, his lens, is the heavenly one. He sees her as God would and tries to transform her and to invite her to see things in a different way. I am the living water. I am the one who takes the opportunity to see you in a new way, not as one who is rejected and scorned, but as a sacred part of the kingdom of God. So Jesus tries a different approach with her as we read this morning. If you want this living water where you won't thirst again, go and bring your husband. 
go and bring your husband. See, Jesus knows the woman's story, and he wants to be seen in her life. He knows the highs, the lows, the goods, the bads, the blessings, and those shadowy parts, those sins that are difficult for us to share with the world. The question of husbands is an important one. We don't know her exact story. We know it matters to her, and we'll come to that in a moment's time. She may be the kind of woman that the Sadducees imagined in their challenge to Jesus. See, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, so a woman marries a man and they have no children, he dies, so she marries his brother, as is our practice. He dies without bearing children, so she marries another on down the line until she's married all five brothers. Whose wife is she then in the resurrection? She could be a part of a social paradigm where she's been barren and unable to bear children for the men she's married, and so she's gone through five, now six relationships without bearing fruit, as they might call it in their day and age. Other scholars say, well, perhaps she's an adulterer, and the husbandry image is that of a spiritual sense, that she's laid with men and has this reputation in their community. Perhaps she was a prostitute, as appears in other sections in our gospel. Regardless of what brings her to the story about husbands, Jesus knows her story and wants to be seen in her life. The simple truth is that God will find ways to be seen in your life in a variety of ways, rarely just a single one. God's going to find a way to communicate with you, in you, through you, in a whole variety of ways, particularly if you're the type to respond to God's call and God's work in your story by doing this. La, 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 I can't hear you, God. That was the experience of my call story for a long time. I mentioned last week that I grew up the son of the United Methodist minister. Uh, you may not have met him. He was sitting in the back row misbehaving for most of the service last week. Came to support us on our first Sunday. I only knew life as a Methodist minister's kid. I was born when he was at seminary. And so I traveled from church to church with him growing up. He, in a unique way for me, he was the only Methodist minister that I knew for the first 18 years of my life. And in every church we went to, there were lovely people. Let's call them little old church ladies. There are none here. Who used to pat little Andy on the head and say, oh, I bet you're going to be a pastor someday. The apple never falls far from the tree. Oh, God has given you such grace and talents to be just like your daddy. I can't wait to see what you... And when you sow that into a stubborn teenager, what's the answer that you get? No! I don't want to be in my dad's business. It wasn't until I was in college, and I went to Southern Methodist University on a computer science engineering scholarship. I thought I was going to be writing code and making a difference in the electronic world when I first left school because I knew I wasn't going to be in my dad's business. But I was volunteering in a youth group for a dear friend of mine, Angie Bass, who was a seminarian at the time and a dear friend to me. And I was volunteering in her youth group, and we were sitting around one night, and she said, I tell you what, Andy, if you can tell me how it is you know that you are not called to be in the ministry, I'll never ask again. Consider that question. If you can tell me with some clarity how it is you know that you're not called to be in the ministry, I won't bring it up ever again. And I sat there for what was probably a minute, felt like 50, and then I said something which I knew to never have been more true in my entire life. Oh my God, I am called into ministry. And it rang through my body like a bell. 
there are things in life that you can say that are so true that you feel them in the very core of your being. My hope is maybe that you heard that in your wedding vows or in dedicating your life to Christ. Or maybe it was, boy, the last movie I saw was fantastic. Boom. <laughs> but I spoke truth in that moment, and I knew that to go any other way would be wrong and incorrect. And so I changed my major to religious studies and philosophy and began a work of moving into not my dad's business, but God my father's business with a unique plan for me. You see, God had to reach me in a variety of ways. It didn't work with the little old church ladies and the head padding. I needed to be challenged in my faith. So, the place that Jesus touches is not always a glamorous one. It certainly wasn't for the woman at the well. This is a place where the woman feels vulnerable. It is the reason she feels like she's an outcast and rejected. But it leads to a spiritual revelation. They begin to go back and forth about this idea of living water and about the tension and about her husband's. She tries to reframe the conversation herself and offer a challenge to how he worships. The Samaritans believe we worship here on this hill. You believe we worship down at the temple in Jerusalem, which is right. Should I be in Valencia UMC on a Sunday morning or another church in the area or on my couch watching from home or watching the open? Should I be out on the paseos or in a small group and in fellowship with folks? It's this tension about the idea of where should I find God? And Jesus' answer is not to rebuke her and to say, I'm right and you're wrong. He's to say, I believe in a God that we worship in spirit and in truth. It's a matter of the heart and a matter of the spirit. And the woman who is spiritually thirsty says, I believe that to be true as well. That that will come to pass when the Messiah comes. And he says, I am he. Go and find your husband. Let's get you some living water. This spiritual revelation of Jesus as the Messiah becomes transformative. And her answer is what we see on our screens. Come and see. She invites others to a, a chance to uh, intersect this Christ that she met. Come and see is invitational, trusting, and authentic. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Consider her words in her invitation. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She's so defined by her past relationships that she carries as a shackle into her interaction with everybody else she meets. Come and see me. Come and see a man who told me everything I need to know about myself. The relationships that we've had, and certainly the worst ones, do not define us so fully that we should stand apart from others because of them. But I ask you the question, what relationships are defining you? What relationships help you to know who you are for good or for bad? Are they relationships from the past? A place where you were mistreated? A place where you felt abused or where you felt a sense of struggle? Are they relationships from the past that in the present you find current relationships hard to live up to? I haven't found anybody like my mama. Nobody's quite like my grandpa. Nobody cooks like my aunt or loves me the way that my high school sweetheart did. Are you defined by relationships in the present? By your interaction with work colleagues, with faith colleagues in the pews? Are you impacted by what are now eternal relationships. Those relationships that you've lost to death, 
where you can no longer fix it, where you can no longer say the right thing, do the right thing, be the right daughter or the right parent, to be able to change a relationship with someone because you seem to have lost that eternity, or maybe the relationship that's defining you is an eternal one because it is in fact your struggle with God or the ways in which you have blessed by God which are defining you most clearly. Where do you see God in your story? What relationships are defining you? The woman at the well reminds us that Jesus meets us in moments that matter. The highs, the lows. Jesus shows up at baptisms, weddings, communions. But Jesus shows up at funerals, at well sides, in places of deep struggle. If it is true that Jesus meets us in moments that matter and we can begin to see Jesus in moments that matter, the question that remains is how do we take God in our life and offer other people the chances to come and see? Because the simple confession is is that when we can see God, we have all we need to show God. Now, you might say, well, I'm not good at showing God in my life. I, I don't have the right words. Moses had the same problem. I can't show God in my life because I'd be embarrassed that I might be judged. I can't show God in my life because I'm not sure that's a God thing. It might just be indigestion. (laughs) When you've seen God, you have everything you need to show God to the world. The woman does. She sees Jesus and she goes back and she wants to show it to them. And the simple truth is that her confession, her testimony is incomplete. She asks the question, could this be the Christ? When she says, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done, she does not do that from a place of confidence that says, I know I'm right. She still has questions. When we see God in our lives, we have all we need to show God. God does not require that we have all the answers. Her choice honors the thirst that Sakar has. That as Samaritans, they're a part of a history of division and divorce. Samaria exists because there was a time when Israelites intermarried with Canaanites against God's instruction. Those people became social outcasts and were set aside from the purity of the Israelite culture in the kingdom of Judah. So Samaria became a region of people who were like but not like faithful Israelites. And so they had a similar spiritual thirst. They longed for Messiah because it was the truth and confession of their grandparents' grandparents, and they felt cast aside by society. And so when she comes and she offers and says, could this be the Messiah, it's an imperfect claim. Jesus doesn't meet her expectations. He doesn't look like a Messiah should. And there might be times when you invite something or someone to come and see God in your life and it doesn't look like what you expect. Sometimes church is messy. Sometimes your pastor talks too fast or too loud. Sometimes things don't line up. But that doesn't stop us from having all we need to show God in our story. Jesus doesn't meet the expectation of Messiah, and that's okay. Because watch what happens. Take a look at the rest of the text. Many of the Samaritans from town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we believe because we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Two things are true. First, Jesus stays. When they needed more, when they needed to understand more deeply, when they called upon Christ's presence in their story, Jesus stays. He stays with them two days so that it can be a handoff from what the woman has shared into an experience of him directly. Jesus does not abandon us to our questions and to our journey. But beyond that, the come and see invitation allows the spirit to take over the work of discipleship. The woman is not responsible for bringing everybody into a deeper relationship with Christ. And the simple truth is, is neither am I. If you think the work of the church is to bring people to meet a pastor who makes other people better, boy, do I have some bad news for you. <laughs> the work of the church is accomplished mutually, not out of perfection and ultimately not out of perfection in worship. Quick aside. When I design a worship service, I don't design it to be liked by anybody in particular. You might go, oh, well, that's a bold claim. Here's what I mean. Not one time did we plan today's worship or the worships ahead with a sense of, boy, I hope this person shows up because every element of worship is spot on perfect for them. <laughs> the songs are right, the prayer is right, the video's right, the sound is correct. Everything lines up perfect for this person, not even me. No, it's because I believe and confess in the work of God that the Spirit takes over the work of discipleship and that in good worship we find different avenues into the work of Christ. The Spirit will stir us up. It might be the anthem. It might be a hymn we sing together. It might be the words of the prayer. It might be the words of the sermon. It might be a video element. It might be a conversation you have in the parking lot or at a time of fellowship. The Spirit will help you to find a moment if we're making ourselves available to come and see, that says this, this place right here, this is what worship was for me today. I had to tell you, friends, I'm so glad that I don't have to be God to anyone or Christ for any of you. My responsibility is to know that when I see God, I have all I need to show God. I need to make myself humble and available I have to be a, responsible for the Christ in my life and offer to a world who has deep thirst the opportunity to join me at the well and to come and see all that God is doing. Where are you seeing God in your life? Where are you feeling the Spirit's nudge to come and see? Let's pray.